This is the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. The issue is that the raising money part takes you into the securities world and gets you out of the real estate world. Um, the securities world says that if you're raising money from other people who are going to invest with you and expect a profit and you're going to make it happen, it's a security. You're listening to the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast, where we discuss tangible tips, tricks, and best practices for becoming financially free. The show is designed for people who want to either start real estate investing or for those who want to scale their real estate business. What's going on, everyone? This is Jonathan Farber, your host of the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. I hope you're all well and healthy. For any first-time listeners, thanks for being here. The goal of this show is to explore ways to become financially free through real estate or to increase passive cash flow through real estate. A little background on myself, I work in corporate America at a software company and my side hustle is real estate. I currently own eight rental units and looking to add more this spring. I have house hacked, bird, flipped, and done short-term rentals to name a few strategies. My current focus is 20 to 30 unit apartment buildings in Ohio and Kentucky. I love to network and learn. So if you'd like to connect further, feel free to find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, or BiggerPockets. What's going on, guys? Got an awesome episode today with Eugene Trowbridge. A little different from our typical investor, grassroots startup, you know, a couple deals and grow. Eugene uh, started his real estate syndication business in his early years um, in Twin Cities, Minnesota, before then going to law school. Uh, and from there has had more or less two or three careers where he has kept up a syndication business and then in his law career helped other syndicators um, stay safe and protect themselves and also become educated. And then he's turned that into his third part of his business now, which is teaching and making sure that beginner syndicators and beginner real estate, real estate investors um, stay the course and don't get themselves into trouble and get educated um, to make sure they're making money and staying safe. So really fun episode with him. I get to ask a lot of questions that I've been curious about. And I realized also, as I was asking these questions, a lot of the things that I kind of glaze over or you hear glazed over in real estate, as far as how to partner with people or the terminology is incorrect. So a couple of times we doubled back and just drilled into stuff that he said really was the core um, need for understanding to be successful and then speak um, from an educated standpoint. So really cool stuff there. That was kind of the main takeaway I had from the episode that the words you use and the uh, education you have will let everyone know uh, within about one minute of your level of education or experience on a topic. And that's easier said than done. It's common sense. But in the sense that he talked about, if you're going out to the market trying to get investors or raise capital or pitch a deal, you really do need to have the lingo down. It kind of reminds me of um, something that Joe Fairless talks about, which is the first thing when he started syndicating was uh, he had a note card with him at all time, just talking about the real estate terms that he needed to memorize before he could go out and raise capital. So that was it. Um, really good episode there. Uh, today's tangible tip is going out and speaking with three property managers. And I say this because a lot of times I get the question of, is this a good area to rent? How much can I rent it for? 
and um, what other areas are good places to rent in this area. And property managers can solve that in a couple of ways, but one, just by having a relationship um, with you, they'll be happy to tell you that stuff, but also they're on the ground every day. So they can help you understand these things that you might be looking up on Google Maps or spreadsheets or other podcasts, but they're actually in it and see it every day. And they have a portfolio that they can talk about what the good and bad areas are. So that's today's tangible tip. I recommend everyone reach out to a couple of property managers in their perspective areas to get a little more educated and start building a relationship. Without any further ado, awesome episode today with Eugene Trowbridge. Eugene, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thanks. Hi, Jonathan. Uh, I don't know when you're going to broadcast this, but for today, good morning. It's early in California. <laughs> Tell our listeners where you're coming from and what time you typically start your day. We were talking about a couple pre-recording uh, stories of you getting on the horn pretty early uh, to keep up with East Coast hours. I, I love it. I respect it, but everything's hear all about East it. Coast. Everything's on the East Coast for me. So if I'm not, if I'm not up and going here uh, with my first cup of coffee, by uh, 6.30 or so, I'm missing all the people on the, uh, on the East Coast. And then it slows down about 3 o'clock here. It's, uh, it slows down, but that's good. I'm in uh, Southern California. Uh, I, I moved to Southern California in 79 from Minnesota with my family. And mm -hmm. I'm down here. If anyone knows Southern California, I'm in Orange County. And I'm all five miles south of the John Wayne Airport, directly mm -hmm. inland from uh, the Laguna Beach area. So awesome. that's, that's, where, that's where I am. So you pay that, uh, that weather tax, but you actually get something for it, unlike my friends and family in New York, who are, uh, I guess, on the other side of that stick. But No, we do. And this, this, as we're filming this, this has been an unbelievable unbelievably hot. Uh, August was very hot and we're going to, and, and I'll share this with you, we're going to have a hundred degrees on uh, Saturday and Sunday here, uh, which is unfortunate because that, that's just, that's 25 degrees above normal. Um, every year at this time I go to Kauai and I run the Kauai half marathon and mm. this will be my 12th year in a row to run the Kauai half marathon. And this year, because no one can go to Kauai, uh, it's a virtual half marathon. So anyone who wants <laughs> to run can pick any course they want to run it, run it, turn in their time. I've got my shirt. I've got my all this. But it's going to be 110 degrees by noon where we're running. We're going out, to, we're going inland mm -hmm. uh, to the wine country, into the Temecula, uh, San Diego wine country, and running around the lake. And it's going to be hot. It's going to be hot. So this may be the last time you see me. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to wish you luck, but uh, I'm sure you'll be great. That's hilarious. But uh, that is very hot. Well, you'll, you'll get through it and best of luck. Um, it's, hot, but, it's hot in Hawaii when we run, too. In Hawaii, we run yeah. start at 6. Mm -hmm. uh, but more so is the humidity there. It yeah. might be 85 or 90, mm -hmm. but the humidity is great. This, this is uh, just flat out 110 degrees, barn burner, dry heat. Yep. Well, speaking of heat, I think that's a good segue into the, in some cases, hot real estate market in yes. uh, parts of the country. But before we get into anything, I guess, 
uh, going on today. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you got started in real estate. If you could give us a, a high level sure. summary of your uh, entry into real estate and then what you do today. Okay. So I've really had three careers, Jonathan. Uh, my first career uh, coming out of college was as a commercial real estate broker. And I sold commercial real estate um, back in Minnesota. And somewhere along the line, I had picked up a couple of rental houses and uh, didn't like the, the management intensive care of the rental houses. So um, I thought I'd go into an apartment building. And just like every syndicator I know, the reason you become a syndicator is you don't have all the money you need to buy all the real estate you want. So if you're going to get where you're going to go, you need to pool resources from other people. So I found three guys I went to college with and went out and uh, we, bought, we bought an apartment building. And lo and behold, I was a syndicator before I even knew the word. Okay, so that was, that was good. So that was my career in Minnesota. Then I moved to uh, California and uh, decided instead of breaking into the <clears throat> commercial brokerage business out here where I really didn't know anyone, I thought I'd be a full-time syndicator. So the next part of my career, which was about 20 years, was as a full-time syndicator. And during that time, I put together 16 funds. Um, 12 of them had uh, multiple properties in them and we built self-storage from the ground up. Got it 50%, 60% rented and sold it off to uh, people who wanted self-storage for a long-term investment. I was in the business of creating wealth for investors, not uh, monthly cash flows. So that's what we did. And uh, at the height of insanity, Jonathan, one year I sent out 1,676 K-1s. Wow. I, I jokingly say I spent three months licking envelopes and putting stamps. But, but back then, um, there were no what I call white label back office companies to help me with that. There are now, and who knows what I would have done if there was some offloading of that uh, administrative work. I got to the point where I really needed to grow my business, get more people, get a bigger office space. And I, I came home one day at lunch and uh, sat around the kitchen table with my wife where all the great decisions in life are made at the kitchen table. And I said, you know, I've had enough of this. The, the, what I say is the, the uh, care and maintenance of partners can wear a guy out. And um, I think I'll go to law school. So at 43, I headed off with a wife working, two kids, and a business still running. I headed off to be a part-time law school student. And at 45, I passed the California bar. And uh, I had a, six or seven years of revenue coming in from my syndication business, uh, which paid for all that stuff and uh, got out of law school and I was only gonna do one thing. I was gonna be a solo practitioner. I've never signed a W-2, a W-4, I've never been an employee. Hmm. A solo practitioner in uh, the area of syndication law. So uh, uh, 19, um, 1996, mm -hmm. I started my law practice and I've really been doing that ever since. And so I'm a, if there is such a thing, I'm a securities lawyer. 
I do the paperwork for anyone like yourself. If you, when you go to do your next syndication, um, you're going to hire an attorney to do the work. I'm the type of guy that you would hire and I work all around the country. It's federal mm -hmm. law, so we can work everywhere. And uh, I've been in uh, three versions of partnerships over the years, just starting a new one uh, about 100 days ago. And I mentor. I usually take on newer people, mentor them. I do plenty of business, so there's business for them to cut their teeth on. And uh, lo and behold, when they get successful enough, they want to go off and, and own their own firm, which is great. It's kind of what I do. And so I'm in my third partnership, which is called Trowbridge Law Group. And there's six of us. And this is what we're doing. We primarily do, and you'll hear this, Regulation D and Regulation A offerings. That's what we do. Primarily real estate. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. So much there. There's so many interesting parts of that background. It's so different than most of the people that we've had on, which just maybe quit their job and start doing real estate full-time or they just go into real estate full-time from the beginning, but none that have, I'd say, changed courses the way that you have or maybe even got into the way that you did. Um, so I, I just have a couple of personal questions too, just because I think the motives of why people do things also are, are crucial to the decisions they make and then how it shapes kind of what they do later in life. So for you getting into law after the real estate, um, for a lot of people that are in this business, it's just about making money. But it sounds like for you, it wasn't necessarily just about making money because you can make a lot of money in real estate. So for you, was it like a love for law that you wanted to try to explore? Or were you just interested in the real estate side of like law? Or like what drew you to that, that you said, I want to do this instead of just growing a real estate business? <clears throat> well, what's the name of your podcast? Millennial Millionaire? Okay, when yeah. I was a millennial, whenever I that was, when I was back there, <laughs> I wanted to build my wealth. Uh -huh. And I didn't think I could build my wealth just working as a commission salesman in real estate. I thought, Jonathan, the thing to do would be to own real estate. All the wealthy people I knew in the Twin Cities back in Minneapolis, where I was, owned real estate. And I think historically, you find that a lot of people create wealth in real estate. So I went into this area, buying my own, syndicating my own to uh, create wealth. And that worked, that worked very well for me. But at some point in time, the business got too big. And I have had, I've had three times in my life where I had a choice of going big or staying small where I am, and I've always reverted to staying small. So as I said, I was at a, at a crux in the syndication world where I had to either go big or stay small. And I felt that if I tried to stay small, that wouldn't work given what was happening in the securities world at that time. So mm -hmm. I said, how do I stay in the business? And I looked around and I could go to work for a syndicator. I could do all sorts of stuff. But I, I thought, well, maybe I'll be a lawyer. I, all, I had thought, I have no love for the law. I don't want to practice constitutional law and, uh, and uh, family law and all that stuff. The only thing I ever wanted to do is to do what I know and help other people get in this business. So somewhere in my life, I've, I've adapted the label of mentor. And I've been a mentor to a lot of people. I mean, I took a guy, um, one of my best stories is I, I did a syndication for a person. It was his first deal. 
back in 2001. And we're now at 110 deals. Wow. You know, that's amazing. And, and, uh, and we've got a pattern, we've got a, you know, it works pretty well. And I've been instrumental in uh, mentoring and have many, many clients that have done over 20 transactions with me over time. And uh, one of the things that I find that's interesting, if I look at the monthly uh, sheet, we keep track of our clients uh, for every every two existing client deals that I do in a month, I do a brand new client deal. So we're always building. We're, we're at about 900 um, offerings since 2014 and about sure. 600 different clients. Mm -hmm. Wow. So real so, estate's in my blood. Real estate's right. in my blood. And this is just another way to be in real estate. I'd love to talk about what patterns you see with your students as a lot of people sure. listening to this right now are maybe considering getting a mentor, maybe considering their best way to start. If it means doing it on their own, if it means investing in a syndication, if it means interning for a syndication practice. So, um, but I'd really love to drill into what are the themes you see between people that are successful and not. So even if it meant like, walking through what a typical client would be that comes to you and says, I want to get started. What does it typically look like from day one of sure. them coming to you? What questions are they asking? What uh, questions are you answering and what actions do they take to be successful as opposed to the ones that aren't? I get a lot of calls that I call homework calls. People are calling and they say, you know, I don't have a deal yet. But I'm thinking about doing it. And someone told me I should talk to an attorney before I get started. So, okay. So let's talk and um, <laughs> uh, let's talk. So they, they often ask me when in the process do they hire an attorney? That's probably one of the first questions. And mm -hmm. my answer to them is they should probably hire an attorney when they have, because see, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna coach them in the real estate deal you go to other mentors for NOI and cap rates and all that stuff. Sure. So you're out doing your due diligence and whatever. When do you need someone like, like a gene? And I always say, well, when you get the letter of intent, when you get your letter of intent, if that's how you're working and a lot of people are trained. To and for those that don't know, what is a letter of intent? Well, a letter of intent is a preliminary agreement between you and the, the buyer and the seller that, uh, where it, it hashes out the main terms. And then with a letter of intent, then you can go the next step and go into the more detailed purchase and sale agreement that finally gets signed. The letter of intent isn't really um, binding. Mm -hmm. It's, it's okay. just kind of a meeting of the minds. And so I say, when you get a letter of intent, it looks like you found a, a property Mm -hmm. And uh, then they asked me, well, does it have to be a property? And this is an important part. If you're going to be successful as a beginning syndicator, pick a specific property. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. you don't have a track record to do a blind pool, which means I'm not telling you, Jonathan, what property I'm buying. Just based on my experience, I'll go out and buy something. Send me right. first. Well, right. that's not going to work. You need a specific 
property to uh, to go forward. So um, that's important. So mm -hmm. you come to me when you have your letter of intent and we'll get started. But right then I asked them, I said, okay, let's say you get a letter of intent and let's say you're all ready to raise money. And right. Jonathan, you come to me and I say, yeah, Jonathan, I like your deal. I've got the $50,000 minimum investment you're looking for from an investor. But Jonathan, I got a question for you. If I give you my money, what happens if something happens to you? So immediately I'm in the discussion of continuity. I'm mm -hmm. in the discussion of protecting the investors. Even though I'm talking to a syndicator, I'm talking about protecting the investors. I have seen over my career um, six, seven, eight times where something happens to the syndicator and only once did they die. But there are a number of things that happen to a syndicator that make it impossible for them to continue without throwing all of their investors in, in, into trouble. Hmm. So I want to coach my, I want to coach you, Jonathan, that when we're ready to go, you're going to have to find at least one more person to be in what I call the manager entity. Because we're going to form an entity to buy the property. Mm -hmm. That's where all the investors invest. But someone's got to manage that. That's the manager LLC. And you've got to provide continuity. The banks will require it. Mm -hmm. uh, your investors, it'll be a real negative to marketing if, if you say, well, I'm, I'm okay. Well, because you can't have the property management company can't step in mm -hmm. to the role of the, of the manager of an LLC. Sure. They don't have authority. So right. that's a big deal. That's probably the number one question a, an investor is going to ask you, or they should. Mm -hmm. They should ask you first, what happens if something happens to you? Mm -hmm. And so we go through that discussion. Who's the right person and all that? Okay. Very interesting. Yeah. Because I think that's something that people, they debate back and forth of when to engage a lawyer, how much help do they need from a lawyer? And a lot of times I think that's a deterrent for people because they don't know any in their network and they feel like if they call one, they're going to have to pay this big hourly fee just for a first call or a consultation and it stops them from getting started. But yeah, I sounds... think most attorneys give you free consultations. And then in our firm, and, mm -hmm. and this is a trend, um, most of us will quote a flat fee. And what does that mean? Uh, a flat fee, not hourly. I never charge. I, I built my business uh, not charging hourly because I don't want to have to keep track. And uh, I don't want my clients not to call me because they think there's going to be the <laughs> clock is ticking. And I want, when I was a syndicator, uh -huh. uh, I wanted a flat fee so I could budget for it. And sure. yes, it's paid up front, but it's, but you get it back. And away you go. So I think, uh, I think a flat fee is the way to do business. And I think that uh, that takes the uh, mystique out of it for the investors. And uh, so we'll talk about that. Another question that they that I will ask them if they come to me and when they come to me is, um, how's your database? You know, because we're going to get mm -hmm. in sometime to a discussion of can you advertise for investors or do you just deal with people you know? And most first time syndicators are gonna to have to raise money from people they know. 
Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk about this. Yes. Period. And so I say, what's your database like? Is your, you know, if you don't have a database, what exactly is your plan? Right. Well, you're going to have to advertise. So in, um, in the most common offering, 97%, according to the SEC, of all the money that's raised in private placements mm-hmm. is raised in Regulation D. I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but Regulation yeah. D is a carve-out mm-hmm. from the whole securities law that'll let you do a private placement without going to the SEC and having full approval so you can go public. Uh Private placement business, Jonathan, is for new money is bigger than Wall Street. In the last numbers that the SEC put out during a 12-month period was $1.6 trillion in private placements. Not all real estate, of course, but private placements. And in the in this carve out for private placements, there are a couple of rules, but the biggest rule that people follow is regulation D is in dog. And in regulation D, yeah. there's two parts. One says you can advertise and one says you can't. Well, in your first deal, advertising is of no value to you at all. So let's forget about that. We talk about that some other time. Sure. <laughs> so just, yeah, go, go ahead. I, I mean, I have a couple of questions here, but just in this sense, let's say like a scenario because I, I, the terminology I think is super important. And for people that are actually at the stage of doing it or have done multiple deals, I think knowing this can save them from getting into a lot of trouble. But can we go through a scenario of just, let's say like an average listener would have, or even myself, if let's say I stumbled across a 50 unit deal and I had some of the capital for the down payment. And I had some of the capital that would al- I would allocate for the repairs and keeping in reserves, but I, w- I was short of the down payment and the reserves that I would need to feel comfortable. So in this case, I have some delta between closing the transaction. I can't do the deal by myself. So in this case, I am wondering, and, and again, this could be me, this could be hypothetical, but I'm wondering, what can I do? What are my options? If I'm short on the capital, do I automatically need to syndicate? Uh, can I do a joint venture deal? And if I do either of those options, what are my safe ways um, where I won't get in trouble, but also will have a good likelihood of getting connected with that capital that I can explore? Can I post on Facebook? Can I go in the street and just start, you know, tapping on, knocking on doors? I mean, how can I, like, what are the safe ways or ways that you've seen to raise that capital? And would you point me in a different direction of syndication or joint venture in that exact scenario? Well, I'm glad you bring that up because the joint venture discussion on the street is mostly incorrect. Okay. Awesome. And I know that all many of your people are following different mentors and you hear that word and everything. I'm going to give you the straight scoop. Okay. Love it. <laughs> well, the first thing I would say is you got to figure out this continuity problem for who's going to be the manager of all those people. That's the number one step. And the number two step is you've got to organize your database because more than likely you're not going to advertise. So you've got to know who, who are you going to talk to when it's time? You've got to have that. And that's an ongoing project for a syndicator, always building your database. And then uh, you've hit it right. You found a specific property. So now the next thing to do is while you're doing your due diligence, while you're looking out for a loan, you need to get a hold of the attorney and you need to get the proper papers 
drafted so you can go out and talk to investors about investing. Now, mm -hmm. in your database where you have people you know, you can put out some preliminary information about the property okay. to, to let them know that this is what's happening and you're going to raise money and they, if they want to invest with you, they should stay liquid because you're going to be coming back to them in two or three weeks asking for a check. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I think that, I think that's very important. And then while, while you're doing that, your attorney is drafting your, your documents and then, and then you can raise money. But the issue is, the issue is that, the raising money part takes you into the securities world and gets you out of the real estate world. Um, the securities world says that if you're raising money from other people who are going to invest with you and expect a profit and you're going to make it happen, it's a security. An investment of money in a common enterprise, we're all doing the same thing, with an expectation of profit, which makes it different than GoFundMe, okay? Hey, I need a vacation. Send me some money. Well, that's not a security, so we don't care about that. That's a donative. It's a gift. Mm -hmm. But, hey, I need some money to start a brewery, and uh, I've got a good recipe I just need more equipment and a space and I'll share the profits with you. That's a security. Okay. So now you're into your question. Hey, what should I do? <laughs> and so I got my calls are, Gene, I want to raise money from five or six people and I don't want it to be a syndication. Perfect. Yep. Bad question. Okay. Only because of vocabulary. We're, we're I, I say perfect because that's how I hear it too. Yeah, I know. So that's what I'm saying. Like you're addressing it exactly how it's being asked. So yeah, so I've got that bad question only because of vocabulary. A syndication is two or more people pooling their resources and their management skills to do some business. I mean, you go to the movie. At the beginning of the movie, there's 15 different companies that are listed with their logos. That's a syndication. Okay. Mm -hmm. You get on an airplane. You don't own the plane. You can't fly it. You and 140 of your closest friends get in an airplane to go somewhere. Hire good equipment, professional management. Uh, those are fine, but those aren't sharing profits. What we're talking about is taking all these investors into investment LLC. And you're going to manage it for manager LLC. That's absolutely uh, security. So now the federal government has a reason to protect these investors mm -hmm. and wrote securities laws back in the 30s and 1930s uh, uh, that number one uh, protect investors based on disclosure the first security law just says hey you've got to tell the investors everything there is before they invest you have to make if i can quote the words all the material representations mm -hmm. so the investor can make an informed decision Sure. And why, how could you do that? You'd write a PPM. You'd write a private placement memorandum. You write an offering document, put it all in writing and give it to the investors. That's basically what the first security law is. And then the second security law says, I want to regulate who's selling these securities. 
Mm-hmm. And so there's some checks and balances so we don't have fraudulent people out there selling. So got we got a security. So you have to follow the rules. Now so, let's talk about joint venture. Perfect. I want to clear this up just in case we run out of time to get there. A joint venture isn't a method of ownership. It's a way we're going to put, bring people together to do something. But somewhere along the line, we have to take title to the real estate. Okay. Many joint ventures are what they call general partnerships. You're a general partner. I'm a general partner. Cool. And we're going to do a joint venture. Okay. Well, okay. So that's a syndication. Two people pulling their money and their management to do it. And I'm going to take title and you're going to, the general partnership will take title. We both own part of the general partnership. That's fine. But the question is, is that a security? Okay. Right. If you have 10% of the general partnership and I have 90% and the general partnership is laid out so that I can vote my 90%, and mm-hmm. you could vote your 10, you have a security. You have a security because I'm in charge. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. You're the efforts of the promoter. I'm in charge. So what you can do in a 90-10 deal, what you can do is have two votes, two equal votes. And every major decision has to be unanimous. You have to get me out of fourth step of a security solely through the efforts of someone else. You can't have a passive investor in an offering and uh, not have it be a security. Limited partnerships. Every investor by definition is passive. They can't vote. Right. Automatically a security. LLC. Well, right. A lot of sponsors don't want the investors to vote for anything of any significance. Security, joint venture, if it isn't two equal votes or three equal votes, if anyone controls anyone else's money, it's a security. Plus, how do you get anything done if you've got 10 general partners in a deal and they're all going to vote and you have to do everything unanimous? You know, that's ridiculous. So just to summarize, I guess, well, can you summarize, I guess, the differences then? Because, again, the terminology is important, but I think for someone listening who doesn't maybe know what a lot of the lingo means and they're looking for a simple answer, what is the difference between a syndication and a joint venture? They're both syndications. Can... Sure, but, but I'm saying, I'm saying in the, in the down-the-line terminology and like application of people talking about these. What's like... the difference between a security and a joint venture? That's the, they're both okay. syndications. Pooling money and pooling resources to get something done is a syndication. Now, how you take title and how you do all that is either an IRS rule or, or something. So in a joint venture, you have to come up with some ownership entity to own the property. And in that ownership entity, you have to look at who's making the decisions. If any one person can make the decision over someone else's money, it's a security. Hmm. But the rage in, 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 in the industry today is, oh, do a joint venture. It's not a security. Well, because they say that if it's a 90-10, but we're both general partners, it's not a security. Well, that's exactly 
incorrect. And that's coming from a misunderstanding of the definition of security and investment of money in a common enterprise where someone's expecting a profit, but someone else is in control making it happen. That's a security. So joint venture won't, I mean, you can make it work. You can make it work by having two equal votes. You can put together an LLC and we can call it a member managed LLC. Well, three, you get together and I don't care what the ownership percentage is, but there's three votes. Mm -hmm. So no one can control someone else's money. There's no one who's passive. Right. So what I'm hearing is in a security, there is someone making decisions on behalf of other people for their capital. Mm -hmm. And in a joint venture, it is equal responsibility and no one has more vote or share say over someone else. So just to simplify this for someone that's out there again with this deal and wondering how can I bring in five people or two people, my, my aunt Billy and my uncle Gene, you know, whatever. And I'm trying to figure out how to structure this with them in a security I would be making decisions on behalf of the entity. If we want to change property managers, I would be controlling that decision. They have no say. In a joint venture, we would have to collectively decide on this and say, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to go with. And those are the difference. And, but in the joint venture setup, it would still be based on their return would still be just dictated whatever we decide, but based on either how much money they put in or their energy committed. But that's something we decide internally as opposed to security. It seems like it's more based on their equity percentage in the deal. Well, their return in both cases, the return is probably based on what their what their investment is. In our example of a joint venture of a 90-10, the return is going to be 90-10, unless there's some other agreement. Um, it's just that the votes are going to be one and one in a joint venture. Mm-hmm. Now, you could put that same deal together and make it a general partnership. You get 10 and I get 90. But I need to paper that for you as a security. Okay. Sure. I need to write the, write the documents for you. And that's, uh, uh, that's, that's okay. You just have to follow the rules. And there's nothing to be afraid of in the securities world. Um, it's just that you have to do it. And you have to do it right. Um, so you can do a JV. You can do an LLC you can do a limited partnership. The next question is, is your control rising to the level of making it a security? Do you mm-hmm. have passive investors? Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to get paid? Let's say we're doing everything equally. <laughs> and who's going to pay you if all, the, if all the decisions are made unanimously? Right. Maybe you can get paid as a property manager. You can always be a property manager, but are you going to share profits? Mm-hmm. 90-10? Uh, because you're making the decisions. I mean, that isn't really a part of the securities world, but uh, quite honestly, if you went to a family and you said, okay, the four of us are going to invest, we're going to be a member managed LLC, which is not a security. We're all going to vote. And I want half of the returns because I'm doing all the work. They're going to say, what? (laughs) Can Mm -hmm. you say what? You know, we're all making all the decisions. You're not going to get paid. So I talk to people about that at all. And they call me and say, well, I, I uh, don't want it to be a security. And I said, well, then you don't want to get paid. Right? Yeah. 
just just in that scenario though i'd actually love to hear what you do think is a fair split again this is the same scenario with one deal and i'm i'm short on capital and let's say i want to bring in two um money partners which in this case this would be a joint venture we are going to have equal voting rights but um i have done all the work let's say i found the deal i hustled for it i have relationships in the area and they are more or less inexperienced and they want to come into the deal and contribute capital and they believe in me. And what would you say in that case would be a fair or common split of returns? Okay, so you want to get a split that is not tied to the amount of capital brought in the deal. For example, they bring in all the capital. They bring in equal, equal amounts, which is all the capital. And you're going to be the third person and you're going to take an owner percentage just because of the work you're going to do. Sure. Let's say that's an okay. area. Yes. Right. I, I mean, yeah, that's, that's fine. Okay. Well, um, I can't tell you on a specific deal, but I'll tell you the marketplace is uh, maybe um, an arrange from 80, 20, 80 for them, 20 for you, all the way up to 50, 50. If it's a development deal and you're going to build something and you're daily involved in all that work, um, it might be as high as 50, 50, but 80, 20 is all also common. However, when you get into the world of LLCs and limited partnerships, you may get into the world of a preferred return where they get paid something first. Let's say they brought in a million dollars and your document says, um, the first thing we're going to send you at the end of the quarter is 6% based on what you've invested. That's a preferred return. So if they get paid first, then that 80-20 can move to 70-30, 75-25. You can, the sponsor will take more because the cash flow is, is, uh, is given to the investors first. Okay. Sure. But if you're not going to do a, uh, a preferred return, it's, uh, you know, 75, 25, 80, 80, Got it. 20, something like that. Uh, I started out at 90, 10, Jonathan, because I wasn't sure I could raise money. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then I, then as I got to raising more money and we were doing development deals, I got to 50, 50 because my deals were good. My track record was good. Uh, one of the mistakes I made was starting at 90, 10. If you're at 90, 10 and you want to do the second deal at 80, 20, how do you go back to the same investors? <laughs> <laughs> Fine line to walk though, when you're trying to right. do with no experience and figuring out how to get your foot in the door. And maybe, I, I don't know if you, you look back and think you could have started at higher, but maybe that was what someone needs to get started. But I see what you're saying, going back to them and trying to renegotiate a little more challenging. But um, Eugene, oh, did you have a comment there? Yeah, I want to say one of the things that I, in my homework call, I mentor my people to is, this is not a for free service you're providing. And I try not to use the word selling investments. What mm -hmm. you wanna do when you're ready to talk to investors, you wanna tell them what opportunity you have found. What is a problem that's out there that you can solve with your opportunity? Most of my clients are multifamily. So right. the opportunity is to provide a good living environment for certain people. And we found a project that if we, if we dress it up and do some things, it'll be great. And I'd like, Jonathan, I'd like you to be able to come in and take part of this opportunity with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Much better wording than, yeah. do you want to buy this or do you want to invest in this? Yeah. Um, 
Eugene, this was uh, uh, action-packed. There was a lot here. I feel like we could still go on for much longer. I have a lot of questions. We might need to do a part two. Or, Let's uh, do a part two. Yeah, I think, I think that would be very beneficial. Um, I still have some questions here, but this was so informative. And just the lingo, I think, can help people stay out of trouble and then also see more informed when they're talking to people in the space because you know how, how it works. The lingo is everything. You can tell how long someone's been doing something or how experienced they are pretty quickly based on the verbiage they use. So um, before, before we get you out of here though, Eugene, I'd love to hear about what's top of mind for you right now. I know you have um, a new course coming out in regard to the CCIM or the CCIM instruction that you do and you do some mentoring as well. So would you mind just talking about that and then um, follow it up okay. with the best way to get in sure. touch? We have a couple of things at the CCIM Institute Mm -hmm. um, CCIM.com. <laughs> they have uh, online courses. Um, and I do one, it's two 90 minute uh, sections in the same week on you know, basically uh, syndication crowdfunding. That's, that's fine. And then our, our company, our firm uh, is uh, doing something a little more in depth and we call it rookie camp. And it's uh, for 15 people at a time online. It's two, three hour sessions. And it's um, only for people who've never done a deal. Okay. And it's very interactive online. And that's, that's kind of exciting. And some of your listeners may very well be in our database now and maybe getting the notice. That's how we market it today. If you're in our database, we, we just sell it to those people because I uh, just a little more. And we only take 15 people, so it sells out right away. Mm -hmm. So that is good. But our website, Trowbridge Law Group, has a lot of uh, good stuff. We've got a great YouTube channel. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on, on social media. And I think that going back to your uh, well, let's say one thing. People can get me at gene at trowbridgelawgroup.com. But going back to your comment about vocabulary, there are three words we talked about today that you've got to get a handle on. Syndication. I want to put five people together, but I don't want it to be a syndication. Bad question. Security. I'm going to raise their money. I'm going to make the decisions. I'm going to get paid or joint venture. We're all going in this together. No one's in charge. We're gonna have equal votes. Joint venture. Or you can have a joint venture where I'm gonna get paid and make all the money. Security, okay? Right. So just because you're going to joint venture doesn't mean you avoid the securities law. You still have to worry about the definition and that's it, Jonathan. Eugene, this was so helpful. For me, I've been taking notes throughout this and uh, I'm sure our listeners are going to get a lot of value. And I really do think we need a part two. And uh, when, when the course and the, uh, the small group rookie camp comes out, we'll definitely do uh, more collaborative stuff. But I just want to thank you again for coming on. And uh, I'm, I'm, I wish you could be in Hawaii, but I'm glad you're not for the sake of getting <laughs> this call established. And uh, seriously, I, I want to just thank you again. I wish you all the best in 2020 and beyond. Before we hop, any parting or final word? call for action for the audience? Um, not, not really. Just, uh, just before you get started, if you are a rookie, do a homework call to some attorney that you've been referred to or me 
and we'll just talk about this. There's a lot to know, and you need to be comfortable. Uh, you need to be comfortable when you go to your investors because uh, your investors will notice if you aren't. Yep. And that's not going to help you raise money. And I'm, I'm really in consumer protection, Jonathan. I want all my sponsors to do well for their investors. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Alignment of interest. Awesome. Thank you again, Eugene. All the best. Bye. Hey, you millennial millionaire. Do you want more? Then head to the Millennial Millionaires Through Real Estate Facebook group, where there are tons of step-by-step walkthroughs, tools, templates, and free networking to help you achieve financial freedom through real estate. And if you want Jonathan to help you personally reach your goals, then feel free to set up a one-on-one -on -one call in the link below or message him on any social media platform and apply to, well, work with Jonathan.